Thanks so much for joining us today for When I Grow Up. I am excited for today's guest, who is actually a long, long time friend of mine. Um, if you listen to the very first episode of this podcast, you'll know that I grew up as a competitive figure skater. And this is Miho Yoshioka, who also was a competitive figure skater.、Um, we spent some time and seasons、um, competing together, going to competitions together. I think we went to a few places together, right?、Like、yeah, I think so. Yeah, work and stuff. And then we Also, had the same coach at one time. So we go way back. We lost touch for a while、um, because that's just life, I guess. That's what happens. But、uh, Miho is here to share with us about her life and what she does、um, for her job and her career.、Uh, Miho is a, I'm gonna, hopefully, I get it right. Okay. A biological science technician、uh, with the USDA Agricultural Research Service. Is that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that's a mouthful. But listen, I promise you, folks, that this is some cool stuff. You're going to hear about some cool stuff today.、Um, but before we hear about her story and her life and、um, her journey to what brought her to where she is now working for the USDA Ag- Agricultural Service or Research Service,、um, can you tell us what that even is? What, is a, what do you do? Like, what is a biological science technician?、Ah. So, <laughs> Question. <laughs> so, it's,、um, so, biological science technician is a position that、um, a lot of agencies and even outside of the department、um, or Agencies not associated with USDA have. It's, just, it's a government、uh, position where you are reporting to usually a scientist. So、okay. um, you are basically the hands on person who actually、uh, performs or executes all of the experiments that are、um, more or less designed by the scientist. Um, you do have say in that as well.、Um, but in addition to actually running all of the experiments or collecting the data,、um, you have sort of like a, a lab manager type role where、mm-hmm. you have to do everything、um, to basically upkeep and maintain the laboratory that you work in so that、mm-hmm. can. Involve everything from taking chemical inventory of things every year to、um, drafting out、um, standard operating procedures and protocols、um, to purchasing equipment, to maintaining equipment,、um, and to supervising lab assistants. So, a lot of times we have like undergraduate、uh, lab assistants sort of serving as interns.、Mm-hmm. And so, Um, you're sort of their point person.、Um, and also, kind of co- coordinating all of the meetings、um, that your lab may have.、Um, that's also something that a lab or a biological science technician does. So, it's sort of like a blanket、um, name、uh-huh. for these types of positions. But、um, specifically, since I started working with、uh, Agriculture Research Service,、uh, which I'll Um, say from now on is ARS. Okay.、Um, That's easier. 
<laughs> and then, yeah, ARS. Um, it was, so that was a little over four years ago. So I've been with the agency for a little over four years and like three and a half-ish of those years, I was in uh, Peoria, Illinois. Uh-huh. And at that time I was working with um, the crop bioprotection research unit. So ARS is divided into different locations where they have different research units. Uh-huh. So in this sort of umbrella category of agricultural science, um, there are all of these subcategories and um, they're divided into these research units. And the one that I was working at uh, dealt with basically developing microbe or um, so bacteria, fungi based um, basically pesticides for important crops um, in order to basically um, reduce the amount of chemical, like harmful chemical pesticides that are used out there. Um, So I was working in a lab doing that um, in Illinois, uh, specifically working with wheat and potatoes. Um, But since moving to Fort Collins last year. um, That's where you are now, right? Yeah, that's where I'm living right now. Um, And uh, so I started working still kind of in the plant pathology field um, with sugar beets. So different crop, but. I was working sort of in a, a disease um, assessment lab where I would test out different varieties of sugar beet and um, with the hopes of sort of coming up with, you know, conclusions about, um, you know, some varieties are more resistant than others to these pathogens that we were working with and um, aiming to kind of direct the breeding program into basically engineering or um, isolating uh, essentially like seed banks for varieties that are more resistant. Um, and then since December, I was, uh, I've been working with sort of the other part of our research unit, which is called so- uh, sugar beet or soil management and sugar beet research unit. Uh-huh. Um, so now I'm working more in the soils, um, realm and that was sort of like, uh, it was a change that I didn't really foresee, but just things didn't really work out with, Mm. um, me in the sugar beet lab. And so, um, I was transferred to, um, the part of the research unit that deals more with like soil, soil sciences. Okay. So, um, for people like me that don't know anything about science, right? I'm kind of like, wow, that sounds amazing. But okay. So let's back up a little bit. If you don't mind, the USDA is the United States department of agriculture, correct? So basically you're working with the agriculture that, myself and everyone else in America probably consumes, right? The product, yeah. the produce. Mm-hmm. Um, what is a sugar beet again? I don't know what a sugar beet is. So sugar beet, it's... Is it um, not a beet? It's not it, a beet. It is very closely related to like the red and golden beets that you see in the grocery store. Okay. But sugar beet is actually um, 
a big source of sucrose. So they primarily oh. grow it as um, a sugar source. So like you're in addition to like, you know, sugar cane and, um, and, you know, other, other more common sugar crops, um, uh-huh. sugar beet is primarily used for sugar. Like it's, it's, it is edible, but it's very, very fibrous. So you don't so ever no one like really see, eats a sugar. Yeah, beet. nobody like really just, eats a sugar. I mean, it is technically edible, but you would just like make it into sugar, basically. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you're saving the sugar of America, is what you're trying <laughs> to tell me right now. Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> um, or at least I was until December. <laughs> okay, but now you're working in the the soil, like soil service is what you say. What did yeah, you say? Soil sciences. So, okay. Um, so- so this is not related to sugar beet. Um, so before the the research unit was divided into two, uh-huh. one being the sugar beet and one being soil management. But then over the years, it sort of merged. I see. Okay. Um, but yeah, so now I'm working with soil science and uh, specifically what we're doing in our lab is testing out different um, like land management practices. So things like tillage versus no tillage or like uh, nitro. <laughs> You're <Sorry>. good. <laughs> no worries. Um, <laughs> choking on myself. <laughs> no worries. Um, so things like nitrogen fertilization, um, things like, um, like changing out crops, um, over the years, uh-huh. the same plot of land, that kind of thing. And to see what those effects are on soil health. Uh-huh. So soil health can be everything from like the soil texture to the carbon, con- carbon and nitrogen content to, you know, beneficial microbes that are good for nutrient cycling, that kind of thing. So we do um, different experiments, um, including some out in the field where we test those out in like a manageable setting. Um, And, you know, since I've been working in this since December, and given that I have very, very little soil science background, you know, prior to that, it's been a lot of like learning and especially mm-hmm. like chemistry concepts. Cause you know, I'm more biology, mm-hmm. um, versed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been a little bit of a challenge getting my head around these chemistry, like soil chemistry concepts, but, um, you know, I, I'm taking it as another like learning experience and I'm enjoying it so far. So. No, absolutely. And I'm sure your higher ups put you there with a, with good reason. So I'm sure they're in good hands. I'm not worried about the soil of America. Miho <laughs> is there. It, yeah, it just, just, honestly, I'm, I'm just, just here like single-handedly mind. doing <laughs> Okay, I know, I know, I know there's a team of people that do this, and I know there's other scientists, but for me, I'm like, as as someone that's known you for a long time, I just really think it's incredible that um, you're a part of that, you know, um, in doing that. It's And even before, you said you're in Peoria doing potato stuff, and I love potatoes, 
And I remember when you first started this job, that job, I was like, oh my gosh, you're going to save the potatoes too? Like, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because you said that there were like some problems at the time. Are you allowed to tell me that? Um, problems in Peoria? Or not problems, but like, you know, you're saying like there was, there was stuff with the potatoes that, am I making this up? I could have sworn you said like, they're kind of not diseased, but. Um, well, yeah, like potatoes, uh, definitely have their fair share of like fungal pathogens. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See, saving potatoes too. I love potatoes. (laughs) Yeah, I I know uh, that you do much more than that. But for people that don't know anything about science, that's all I hear. And I'm like, that's pretty amazing. Sorry. (laughs) Ignorant people here. (laughs) No, don't apologize. Because, you know, hearing people say something, say stuff like that. It's like, it's another reminder of how like, unique and enjoyable or like, I guess, like gratifying, I view this position, um, working with the USDA, because before I started working in ARS, um, you know, I was doing more wildlife biology. Mm. Um, I didn't really have too much of like a microbio or agricultural science for that matter, um, background. And it's really the first position that I've had where, you know, at the end of every day, I have this, you know, fulfilling feeling, knowing that I, that was another day of me contributing to, you know, society, really. I mean, we're here, like, as ARS employees to um, do whatever possible to, you know, help, food supplies be sustainable for for years to come and so um being a part of that it's definitely like very humbling and um like I said very like gratifying to know that you know even if it is such a small part that I hold in that little world um like I am still a part of it and so um it's just it's a it's a nice little um um, perk that I have about my job that I never really had in previous positions. Um, just knowing that I'm contributing somehow, um, to, you know, future generations and current ones too. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's amazing. Well, you mentioned before that you were in doing wildlife animal stuff. Um, so let's, you know, let's rewind all the way back (laughs) You know, my question now is, is um, from what I know and I remember, but our listeners have no idea, um, you know, you weren't, like you said before, you weren't planning to be where you are at right now. But when you first started this journey as a scientist, as a, um, when you first started college even, did you kind of know the track you wanted to go in or what were, what were some of the first steps that you took, you know, just even in your studies or um, things like that? Yeah. Like what did you major in? Yeah. So, you know, when you asked me if I knew what my track was going to be, uh-huh. I would say that at the time I thought that I did, uh-huh. you know, at the time I would have said, Oh yeah, hell yeah. Like I'm 
doing this, this, and this. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I applied. So I guess let me rewind. Um, when I was starting to think about colleges, mm-hmm. um, it was the same time that uh, Hurricane Katrina hit. Oh, and there was a series that um, was written in the Atlanta Journal Constitution and called "Through Hell and High Water," and it was basically de- documenting um, interviews with nurses at both Charity Hospital and Tulane Hospital uh-huh. in Louisiana. And I, like, my mom and I read through those because um, I think like a new segment came out like every day or every week, something like that. And there was like a series of articles that came out and I was really inspired by that. And so I actually started to apply or I applied to colleges thinking that I wanted to get into nursing. What? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, And for the longest time, like my dream college was Georgetown okay. and I applied for their uh, international health studies, um, like a nursing program. Okay. And, um, you know, it was, like I said, at the time I was like super gung ho about it. Like, um, and I knew that if I got in, like I would go in a heartbeat. Um, but that was before I had a conversation with my brother um, who said, you know, like, rather than go for a school that will only give you the opportunity to see nursing mm-hmm. as an option, um, it might not hurt to apply to like a more, you know, broader, like liberal arts program that would, you know, still offer nursing as an option, but you would have, you know, classes and options that are beyond nursing, you know, like everything from, cause liberal arts, like you have the sciences, but you also have like the social sciences and you have a pretty well-rounded. Yeah. Um, That's some education. sound advice from your brother. I know. Like. I know it's <laughs> like literally life-changing because um, so I really wanted to get out of Atlanta at the time. Mm-hmm. I feel so, you. Yeah. So <laughs> the only <laughs> The only uh, school that I was planning to apply to um, in Atlanta was Georgia Tech um, because I didn't really want to go to like a huge school like UGA. But um, and so I thought like, oh, maybe I should look into like Emory um, because they have, you know, a bunch of different schools there if Mm -hmm. I you know, want to stick around after college. Like there's a law school, business school medical school, uh, school public health. Um, And so it was like a very last minute decision for me to apply to Emory. Um, And I thought like, oh, but it's in Atlanta. Like, I don't know about that. But so after I applied everywhere and I started getting um, into different colleges, I decided to go visit. And I was, you know, still at the time I was very enthusiastic. Like I got into Georgetown and that was the first time that I ever like fell to my knees and like started crying out of joy <laughs> was when I got into Georgetown. Oh, like yeah, I still I'm remember sure. it. Like, yeah. like being at the mailbox and like my mom had to like pick me up. 
and oh. it was like this dream come true but you know like I went and visited there and it was almost instantly that I thought like oh like this isn't the kind of vibe that I was hoping for. Um, oh, you're kidding. That's crazy. And it was just such a bummer and like deflating more than anything because like all these years, you know, I had dreamt of this place and it just wasn't what I thought it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and then shortly after that, um, I went to go visit Emory and, you know, Emory, like it's in Decatur, which is like very different from other parts of Atlanta. And, um, you know, eventually like my, uh, my mom and I decided, you know, maybe it's good to have the convenience of being close to home, but you still have that like feeling of being away from, like, I still felt like I was outside of Georgia whenever, when I went to Emory. No, I agree. Um, yeah. It's like that. It's just so. Decatur's like very different, but anyway, so I ended up going to Emory and at the beginning I thought, um, you know, I would go on the pre-med track. Um, and I was gonna major in, at one point, my major was neurobehavioral biology um, but neurobehavioral as, biology is that what you said? Neuro? Yeah, neurobehavioral biology. Okay, I'm not even um, going to pretend I know what that is. Basically, <laughs> like brain science, right? Oh, amazing. Okay. Um, and um, but as I started taking like you know human science classes, I thought like, oh, uh, like it's it's pretty, it's pretty strict. It's pretty, you know, hardcore. And, Mm. um, it just, I mean, I, I went through them fine. Um, but something just felt missing, but I couldn't really figure it out at the time. Um, so after freshman year, or I guess like in the spring of freshman year, um, my mom convinced me that I should find some kind of like on campus, um, like research position, um, oh, okay. over the summer. And I found this lab that studies, uh, West Nile virus. Um, oh my goodness. I remember the West Nile right? virus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so mosquito research, uh, mosquito disease research. And I thought like, well, this, you know, it ties into public health. It's sort of along the lines of uh, what my path was at the time. Um, And it was through that, that I just like fell in love with field work. Like I was out in the field. um, I mean, even getting bitten by so many mosquitoes. You I know, was like gonna Atlanta say you enjoyed places. that, like you, but, you know, like like setting up traps and like taking measurements out in the field. Um, and we did a little bit of like bird bird mist netting, which is like bird catching, um, <gasps> to like sample their blood. And so it was just it was my first exposure of like science outside, right? Which is not really anything that I had been exposed to before. And, um, and so I, I ended up like working for that lab, my whole like undergraduate career. Really? Uh, wow. Career after, after that summer. But, um, 
you know, I was really into field work and my mom had, uh, back in the t- back in the day when she was 16, um, she studied or she did like a, um, a foreign exchange program for uh-huh, a year in uh-huh. New Jersey. And ever since then, she sort of instilled in us this, um, this kind of like not requirement, but like, um, she basically told us that you would regret it if you don't study abroad, like uh. when you have the opportunity. And so, um, after, uh, sophomore year, I applied to study tropical biology in Costa Rica, um, for a semester, my junior year. And that basically solidified my love for like wild, like wildlife sciences and like doing field work. Um, and so I quickly, uh, I quickly changed my major from, um, neurobehavioral biology to environmental science. I'm sorry, what year was this of your schooling? I So, um, this was junior year. Junior year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I had already taken some classes that, that applied for the, um, or that would apply to the environmental science major. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it wasn't really like I had to backtrack and take all these extra classes. Um, and, um, yeah, so I basically thought like, oh, animals are so much more fun than humans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I studied abroad there and, um, I finished out my undergrad with, uh, um, an honors thesis in the West Nile virus lab. So I was able to do like my own project, which I did at the CDC campus next door as a guest researcher. Uh Um, and I was able to sort of use their insectary facilities to, um, conduct my my experiments and whatnot which was pretty cool oh yeah like can we talk about that real quick like your experiments because um I don't know I'm really interested I'm sure a lot of other people would be too like what kind of like you're doing experiments on the carrier of the West Nile virus or like the actual mosquito or (laughs) so our lab um it it not only dealt with West Nile, but other mosquito-borne diseases. Uh-huh. Um, and so... Which are what? What other... So like <laughs> dengue fever. Oh, you know, right, that. right. Yes, I have. Um, I have. Like malaria? Dengue. Is that... Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, we didn't do any research on malaria, but we had um, researchers working. Dengue was a big one. Um, my supervisor would go to Peru um, every year. Um um chikungunya but um yeah I guess like the main one was definitely West Nile virus um but uh what I was doing was not so much working with the virus itself but with one of the mosquitoes that are um pretty common in the southeast that can transmit West Nile which Uh is the Asian tiger mosquito Um, it's an invasive mosquito Uh (laughs) and, um, you know, I was, I was more drawn to like the animal itself than like the, um, 
the science of like virus transmission. Okay. So I wanted to look at animal behavior and specifically like egg laying behavior of these females. Um, And so what I was doing at the CDC was basically uh, testing out different, um, different treatments of like pools because these mosquitoes, they lay eggs in water. Right. Um, And so I was manipulating like diet levels of, um, or like, you know, food levels of Mm -hmm. these pools Mm -hmm. to see what, um, which cups or which treatments the females would prefer to lay their eggs in. So basically getting at the whole concept of like, you know, if we know what draws a female to lay their eggs, can we, you know, take any sort of preventative measures for those pools to not be so readily available? Listeners can't see my face right now, but I'm like <laughs> a mind blown. Okay. That's amazing. So that's what you did your thesis on and your study on? Yeah. Wow. Um, did you get yeah, and it was so cool by mosquitoes? <laughs> it was cool because, you know, the reason why the CDC campus was such a big draw. And I mean, like, that's what they specialize in, right? Is like infectious diseases. But um, they have these rooms called, like these lab rooms called insectaries, where you can basically finely manipulate the um, temperature and humidity and like the lights Uh in these rooms so that you can kind of mimic um, outdoor conditions without having all of the like noise of other variables that are outside yeah um so that was really cool um yeah that's really cool man that's so cool okay (laughs) um yeah so that was great and like I got a publication out of it and it was you know my first ever publication so I'm I'm definitely like particularly proud of that one wow wait so this Um, is like like I can google it yeah wow (laughs) that's awesome I have to do that I mean uh, there's the the author list is is pretty long and so I definitely had a lot of help um you know considering that I was still an undergraduate so uh, but, but yeah, even it, it then, is, I think that's very like, It is very cool that yeah. I got a publication out of it. Um, but yeah, so um, I guess right before my senior year, I started applying for jobs. And honestly, I don't really remember if I talked to anybody about jobs like I remember going to the career center fairs Uh a couple times but nothing really like jogs my memory in terms of like any sort of like tangible conversation that I had with anybody where I was just like oh okay so that's what I need to do it was Mm. mostly from just like scrambling through different job job boards. Mm. And, you know, at the time I knew that, uh, society for conservation biology and the Texas A&M job boards were pretty, pretty good for like, um, you know, environmental science positions. And so those are basically like the main ones that I 
that I looked at and, um, I just, you know, started to throw my hat in multiple rings. Um, and I got this hit from, um, a center. So it's the U S geological survey, which is part of the department of interior. So another government position, um, from, or in Bozeman, um, they had a center there called the Rocky mountain research center, uh, Rocky mountain research center. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, It's been a while. No, it's Um, fine. Rocky Mountain but, Research so got it. it was a it was a position it was a biological science technician position so the same um, position, like same title as that you have right title, now right okay um but it was working in a program that studied invasive species and uh testing different technologies to see if we can control them What's an invasive um, species? Like, can I get an so example? An invasive species is one that is not native to whatever habitat you find it in. So, for example, in Atlanta, an invasive plant is kudzu. Yes. So kudzu is not native to the uh, states. It was brought over somehow. Right. Um, and the case, there's a whole slew of invasive species that you can't even count. But mm. um, what I was specifically working with were aquatic invasive species. So, um, you know, because you have ships and, you know, with trading and all of that, it's very easy to, um, to transport non-natives into um sure yeah into into different countries yes um and so and even you know within the country you have transportation and so with that comes unfortunately with the risk of getting invasives into um into whatever land or habitat and so Um, we were testing out different technologies, everything from like UV to, um, to sound waves, um, and basically experimenting with them, um, at different field sites. Um, and so we're working with like New Zealand mud snails. I had a project on quagga mussels near Hoover Dam. Um, it's a big problem there. Um, we had an Alaska study, um, targeting Northern Pike cause they basically displaced spawning grounds for salmon there. Um, so yeah, we had projects all over and I would say that most of what I did was outside of Montana, even though we were based in Bozeman. Oh, um, wow. and so, yeah, so that was my, my first job out of college and, um, you know, it was, it was definitely like a big learning experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, I got a lot of skills out of my, um, under my belt from that, but I kind of missed having like an advisor and doing my own experiments. And so Mm -hmm. after like about two, two and a half years working with that agency, um, I applied for a master's program and okay. you know, I had remembered how much I fell in love with frogs when I was in Costa Rica when I studied there in as an undergrad. Uh-huh. And so I had this 
idea in my head that I just wanted to do like frog field biology for the rest of my life. Holy smokes. Okay. Um, And so I started (laughs) applying to all of these frog research programs. um, And, you know, I, I definitely still had that affinity for studying animal behavior like Uh I did as an undergrad. Uh And so I was specifically looking for uh, research labs that dealt with like frog behavior. Um, and that's how I found my, my, uh, graduate program. Um, so I went to East Carolina university, um, and there there's a lab, um, that studies this particular species of frog called the, the Peruvian, um, mimic poison frog. Um, and they were doing a lot of research on reproductive behavior, which I sort of had dabbled in a little bit, right, right. you know, um, and that sounded awesome to me. And, you know, the fact that they had the opportunity for me to work in Peru too, and do a field season there, it was just like a no brainer. Yeah. Um, so I ended up going there and a lot of my work was lab based. So they had like a captive, um, frog lab, uh, where we would basically maintain this little, um, zoo (laughs) of, of little poison frogs, um, to work with in a lab. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my thesis was based on lab work, but I was able to um, accompany that with a field season that I did in Tarapoto, Peru, which is basically like the jungles of like the eastern foothills of the Andes. Um, and uh, yeah, so I I did that and it was probably like, probably the most stressful time. <laughs> I mean, that I had had so far with grad school. Um, Tell us more about that. Why is that? So, you know, when I was with the USGS working, um, after I would go home, I could forget about work. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was in grad school, and I think this happens to a lot of people in, uh, in grad school, is that because you have that pressure of conducting your own experiment and you are the one spearheading that project, like Uh nobody is really like supervising you. I mean, you have your advisor, but you are your own boss essentially. Mm -hmm. And so you end up going home and, you know, perfectionist people like me tend to um, just keep thinking about Mm -hmm the project or you keep writing or you keep reading papers and it just seemed like I never really got a break, um, break from, from work, Mm. quote unquote. Um, but you know, I know it is possible for people to not have that sort of like always on mentality when they go through grad school. Like I know people who didn't have the same experience, but I, like I said, like I have a little bit of a perfectionist in me and it's hard for me to say no to things. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I just tend to like maximize, um, just on a whole nother level. And so it was basically, 
my own, you know, personality that um, made me feel a little bit burnt out when I went through grad school. Um, yeah, I understand that completely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a um, actually he's a wildlife photographer who recently passed away, and one of his quotes that I really like is. Um, uh, it goes something like, it's not verbatim, but it's like, you, it's not until you know what's more than enough, um, that you know what is enough Mm. or something like that. And I am like a testament of that because, (laughs) you know, I've gone through this, like, you know, constantly inclined hill and it's it really wasn't until like the last maybe couple of years that I really like got good perspective and started to think about what I should like value in life and mm-hmm. it's definitely not work right um yes and so and like my mom always says like Miho if you put in like 70 percent of your effort that's basically everybody else is a hundred percent. I agree. Um, I, probably true. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, yeah, it's like the pressure that I put on myself more than anything wow. that made grad school really, really hard. Mm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like when you're really passionate about something, it's hard not to, you know, not to go there. Yeah. Um, and, but in the end, like I wouldn't, I don't regret doing it, uh, for any reason. And, um, I got so many like great learning experience out of it, not just from my research project itself, but just being a grad student. Um, I was paying for some of my tuition by being a teaching assistant. Uh-huh. Um, and so I taught, uh, microbiology lab and ecology lab for undergraduates. Oh, wow. Um, and it really wasn't until I started teaching that I got more and more comfortable, uh, doing public speaking. Mm. Um, cause before that I dreaded public speaking. Like, <laughs> I would get super red in the face, like right away. And my voice would shake. Um, And so I was dreading teaching, but I had to do it. But in the end, like I ended up loving it because, you know, not only did I get my public speaking skills like honed in, but it was so nice to like have that connection with a student. And especially if they like, you know, say something that makes you think like, oh yeah, like I guess I did teach that very well. And I, you know, you can't really teach something well unless you can publicly speak well, you know? So that was like a really, I guess, proud moment, I guess. No, absolutely. Um, That investment too, that you're making is just really encouraging to what it is that you're doing as well, you know, as you're learning and you're being able to teach it. And I think you even kind of like, um, get a grip of what it is that you really love as you're yeah. doing it too. Yeah. So. And it's, it's sometimes like, you know, it's not until you're forced into doing something that, you know, may not be totally enthusiastic about at the beginning that you end up realizing like, Oh wow. Like I'm so glad that I did that for myself because 
you know, this is like my mom's mantra is like, you never know until you try. And it's so true. Like that has never proven wrong so far. Yeah, definitely. Um, I agree with that. I like that. You never know until you try. Good. <laughs> she like made an acronym for it the other day. And <laughs> I was just like, that's way too long. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, grad school, like it was a proud moment when I graduated. I, I published that paper. Um, I also did a a conference in uh, Cartagena, Colombia, um, where I presented my research all uh-huh. in Spanish, with, in like a PowerPoint in, in Spanish. Spanish. Yeah, so I didn't mention Spanish. I I minored in Spanish Jeez. as an undergrad. <laughs> goodness, talk about um, you know overachiever here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, Spanish. I you know in Atlanta, like you grow up in school learning Spanish. Like I had been speaking Spanish since I was like literally like five years old. And so it was just one of those, when I was in college, I was like, okay, I might as well just keep going at it. Wow. That's incredible. Minor in it. So, um, and so. You presented it in Spanish. Yeah. So I had English (laughs) slides. So like Uh English text, Uh but I, presented it or like I talked about it in Spanish. Um, I guess they gave us the option of having the reverse. So like Uh Spanish text with um, English verbal. Uh, But I went with the challenge, of Of course. course. um, (laughs) It was like, you know, countless hours of me practicing, but um, the hardest part was like fielding the questions. At oh, the end. Yeah. Yeah. There's always like yeah. a Q and a after yeah. these presentations. Um, but I think I, you know, I ended up swinging them pretty well because uh, at the end um, at this conference, this would never happen in the States, but <laughs> there was like, like a closing reception, like uh-huh, outdoor uh-huh. dance party essentially. Yeah. Cause it's Cartagena and like, why not? <laughs> um, and then there were a lot of like undergrads and like grad students that had been at my symposium and some of them found me at that party and they were like, Oh my gosh, like you did such a good presentation. We understood every bit of it. And wow. like, it's like, you're not, you're not Japanese. Like how did you <laughs> learn how to speak Spanish so well? And so that was like, you know, a good like yeah, stamp of approval that I absolutely. got. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was another like memorable thing that came out of grad school. So your um, grad school pro, like what you were focusing on again was these uh, frogs, right? Yeah. So I was uh, looking at tadpole begging behavior. Um, so these frogs, um, the tadpole sort of acts like little, uh, like chicks, like begging for food from their parents. Uh Um, they do this like vibration with their tails, um, to basically elicit like this begging behavior when they're hungry. But what I was actually testing is like, is that really them saying how hungry they are? Or is it just some sort of like, evolutionary, you know, uh, 
byproduct that doesn't really have much meaning. Um, And so I was looking at, you know, are they really begging or are they really vibrating more when they're hungrier as opposed to if it's like right after they eat. And then at the same time, I was looking at whether the parents actually pay attention to this vibrational behavior and can they see that a tadpole is actually like really hungry based on how strongly they vibrate their tail. So what is the conclusion? So it does look like, um, so I did sort of like these starvation studies. Um, No, that doesn't sound good, but okay. (laughs) Basically, like some tadpoles got more food than others. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I did find that the vibration got stronger when they had less food. And then also when they begged more, the parents would attend to them more. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, that seems, when you just talk about that as just like a story, it doesn't seem all that exciting, but you know, given that this little thing. No, that's like, very exciting. <laughs> well, yeah, you would say that. <laughs> but, you know, concept or like logically, it makes sense in our heads, you know, as humans, right? Like, mm-hmm. like parents should be able to, to pick up on if their baby, you know, is hungry or stuff like that. But, you know, to be able to, to have like scientific evidence for that is like a pretty good, pretty big feat Mm. in the whole, you know, realm of animal behavior, because there's so much that goes on with these like social animals that we don't really know if it's just like an idiosyncratic, like random byproducts of like evolution. Mm versus it just it actually being used as like a trigger or a stimulus for another type of behavior for example feeding Mm. the offspring um of your little tadpoles so like it definitely was like this eureka moment um when I crunched all the numbers and I, and I thought that it was almost like too good to be true. Right. Yeah. Um, amazing. But uh, yeah. And I was able to get some footage of it too in the field, oh, which wow. had never been done before. Um, and like really this, this species, it has so many like interesting things about it, not just from like a reproductive behavior standpoint, but just, even as a poison frog species, like it's so different from a lot of other ones. Um, And so I would consider it still being in its like infancy in terms of like being researched. Mm. Um, So it was, it was really, um, it was really nice being a part of that and sort of being the pioneer for um, looking into its offspring behavior. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, I like want to just talk about your, field work and wildlife, you know, studying. I, but I also have to ask you about your actual work too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so no, so, I mean, um, but maybe another conversation at another yeah, time. Sure. So when you, you know, it all sounds like it's like 
you know, this glorious life of being a field biologist, um, you know, you're outside all the time and you get to see all the, these cool things. Um, but honestly, after my experience in Peru, um, I realized that I couldn't really see myself being a field biologist forever. Um, oh, really? I think it was just, just like getting older and, you know, your body's fragile to a lot of things mm. and whether your field work is in um, like out, like outside in the farms or in a tropical country or like in the ocean, like it's definitely taxing on the body when you're, you know, perpetually in that setting. And some people have um, a thicker skin for that. But for me, it was just kind of, I got burnt out. I ran into a bunch of issues when I was in Peru, um, just like injuries and stuff. And oh, gosh, and it just didn't feel like something that would be sustainable for me in the long run. And so that's when I started looking at um, agricultural science because I didn't really want to fully give up um, field work but I wanted more of like a lab based mm-hmm, position. Mm-hmm. So I thought that agricultural science was kind of like a happy medium where you get the opportunity to work in the fields. And um, you also get to work in like uh, plant growth chambers. Um, but you do have a lot of like lab based um, in inside work. Mm. Um, but it was, it's, you know, definitely different from just like a desk job where you're yeah. just staring at a computer all day. Um, it was just like a healthy mix of things that I thought. Um, and so that's why I started applying for agricultural research positions, um, not really knowing if that was um, something that I was competent enough for, just because I didn't really have too much of a plant ba- background. Um, but I thought, you know, why not? And at the same time, I was sort of pursuing this idea of science communication too. So that was like another sort of possible, uh, professional route that I was considering. What is science communication? So basically like mass media writing. Okay. Okay. Um, and at the time I had this dream of writing for the National Geographic um that's that would be cool too (laughs) yeah and you know I considered myself a pretty good writer um but that field tended to be a little bit narrow um Mm -hmm. and I didn't have too much like formal journalism training I see um under my belt so it was a little bit hard to get hits um and like you know, I started like a science blog to kind of up my resume or yeah, up my resume. Um, and it was fun, but I don't know if it's something that I can see myself doing forever either. Right. Um, but so eventually like I got this position in Peoria and, um, it was kind of a surprise because, you know, it was very microbiology, plant pathology mm-hmm. based. Um, and the only sort of microbiology experience that I had before that was 
I taught microbio as a grad student. Oh, that's I right, never yeah. even took microbiology as an undergrad <laughs> or in grad school. Um, and so it was like, you know, it was pretty telling that the supervisor was like very confident in my previous experience, even though they weren't directly related to like plants or agricultural science for that matter. And so I thought like, Oh, like the fact that he sees that potential in me, like makes me interested and makes me want to work for this guy. Mm. Um, and so I ended up moving to Peoria, um, which is a place that I did not know existed before. (laughs) Like I had to (laughs) Google it for sure. Um, and, but Honestly, like it was the best job that I had had, like ever. It oh, was really wow, and it was the the learning experience. Um, first of all, just because you know, coming from a wildlife biology uh, world, it was so different, um, but it was so like stimulating at the same time because you know. I quickly started to be passionate in the whole mission of like, you know, um, contributing towards sustainable agriculture. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of like propelled me into like being really enthusiastic about learning, um, about all of these like fungal pathogens, like microbiology techniques. And I thankfully had like such a good supervisor who was never, uh, one to, you know, like cut me short. Like he would always patiently like teach me things, explain, Mm -hmm. like re-explain things to me. Um, and I could see it. I could see that he like believed that I could do it and that, that I could, that I could succeed in this field that was previously pretty foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, I loved my my coworkers. I loved my supervisor, and it was just such a nice work environment. Like I felt good going to work and coming back home from work every day. Um, but at the same time, life outside of work wasn't really panning out. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the reason why I stuck it out for a little over three years was. Um, was because I just loved what I was doing at yeah. work. But eventually, you know, work does not equal life or it shouldn't. Um, and, you know, I was I was still single. Um, and I thought, like, you know, there, there must be something a little bit more fulfilling outside of work. And so that's why I started looking for positions um, back or – I don't want to say back, but in the mountains somewhere. That was my goal because Mm -hmm. I had such a phenomenal time living in Bozeman, Montana, that it just, it, I just had this like constant itch of like, I need to get back to the mountains. Like that's where I feel like I'm at home. Mm. Um, And, but at the same time, like these government positions, like they're, they're pretty rad in that, you know, you get great benefits and, um, the flexibility is just unmatched in my opinion. Mm. Um, and so 
my goal was to stick with the same agency and sort of have like a, a lateral transfer, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, and so I kept looking at ARS positions and, you know, the nature of the work though, it, considering it's agriculture research, they tend to be in locations where there's just like, you know, farms. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there really aren't that many locations that are in like, like, on the coast or, um, in the mountains. Mm. Um, but Fort Collins was literally like my top choice in terms of like where I wanted to live out of all of the places that I applied to, uh, for ARS positions. And so as soon as I got this job, it was just like, like a split second decision. Like I was there already. Mm. Like I was, it was, it was another one of those, like, oh my gosh, like, this is too good to be true. It's like, I get to stay with the same agency, but I also get to live in the mountains. Yeah. Um, and so awesome. I started working, uh, with the sugar beet and soil management, uh, research unit. So, um, do you, I know, I'm sure it's a lot different than what you're doing in Peoria, but, um, do you enjoy it just as much as you did in Peoria or like, do you still feel the passion about, you know, contributing to the sustainability of the U S United States agriculture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely do enjoy it. Mm Um, it's, it's crazy how, how diverse the field of agricultural science is. Mm -hmm. Um, now that I've sort of dabbled in three different labs in this agency, I'm starting to learn more and more that it's not about doing research in one single specialty Mm -hmm. and really like, and with so many other science or with all science, like collaboration is key to getting like more productivity, mm-hmm. like more experiments done, more um, coming up with like creative ideas and um, everything from designing the experiments to actually executing them. Yeah. Um, and I have been, or I will always be grateful for um, the fact that ever since I joined ARS, I've been able to work with so many different people, so many people from different backgrounds. Um, and I do feel like I'm always, I've always been part of a team, like a, um, like a constantly collaborating team. And it's, it's not something that I ever really, um, um, like had so much passion for before this. Um, and, you know, in addition to having like good research being done with a good solid team, you end up learning a lot from those who have those different backgrounds. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Amazing. And so, yeah, like I would say that it's as fulfilling as it was when it was, when I was in Peoria. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's so many things that I like about my work. Um, 
Well, I mean, there's some that? challenges too, but. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, it's fine. Um, I was going to ask. So um, you're mentioning that, you know, you have to come up with experiments and stuff for your work. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does a typical day for you look like then? Is it just doing these experiments or? Um, does it differ every day? <laughs> it's Yeah. Okay. Okay. In a word, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because the nature of our work, um, especially as biological science technicians, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we don't really have like a routine per se. It's just it depends on what experiment is going on at the time, what data need to be collected at the time. Um, But I'll say that you know, well, before this um, lockdown um, of shelter in place and teleworking um, for like a month or so, I had been working on a series of um, soil samples that had been collected a while ago and basically looking at their uh, chemical composition to basically see how this particular sorghum litter can decompose within the soil. Um, and so I was running this machine called a pyrolysis gas chromatography mass spectrometry, spectrometer, um, okay. <laughs> which is pyrolysis GCMS for short. Um, and it's basically like it burns these um it burns your sample and the volatiles that come off of that burn uh-huh. interact or react with this, um, whatever agent you have in there in, in this particular case, it's like helium gas and it reacts with that. And then based on, you know, how heavy those chemicals are, it'll get picked up by like a reader that basically quantifies those chemicals and identifies them. Um, And so I was running those samples a lot and crunching the numbers for that. Um, But other than that, I was doing, you know, sort of like data analysis, um, you know, literature searches. So like reading papers, writing out protocols for this pyrolysis GCMS. Um, But I was also doing like chemical inventory stuff for like lab management purposes. So it's really like a mixed bag in terms of what you find in a day. Yeah. uh, Which is, I think something that I like about my job because every like no, no two days for the same. Um, So it keeps things different and, um, you get to have your feet in, in like multiple pools. And so you, you do feel like, um, like comprehensive in the works, in the work that you do, uh, which is a big draw. Yeah. That's really neat. Um, I hesitate to even ask, but like, is there something you don't like about your job? (laughs) I wouldn't say, (gasps) That what's the worst it, thing? What's the worst thing about? 
So I was actually thinking about thinking about this and um, I wouldn't say that there's anything that I don't like, but it comes with challenges. Um, and it's the challenge of um, manageability and practicality. And that takes on like two different issues, I think. Like one is the sort of like the experimental design part of the scientific method. Um, Because, you know, in science, there's like an infinite number of questions that we want to answer, right? But in order to answer those questions in a sound way, you have to have a good experimental design. But at the same time, you have limited resources, like both in terms of like equipment and time, but also like manpower. And that includes like the scientist's sanity, right? So it's hard sometimes to answer questions in a manageable way. Like it's it's hard to design experiments so that you know, it still tests your hypothesis um, in a logical way, but within the confines of whatever resources or budget or time that you have available. So that's definitely a challenge. Like, I wouldn't say it's like specific to my job per se. I think it's like a universal truth of science is that experimental design, like, like you do have to make some sacrifices here and there and make some assumptions here and there because you have those limited resources to work with. Interesting. Um, but the second issue is it kind of goes back to me um, working for the crop bioprotection research unit in Peoria. So what we were doing is we were basically seeing um, if a particular microbe was um, at all effective in reducing the amount of damage that a fungal pathogen um, could have on a said crop, whether it be wheat or potatoes that I was working on. And um, the thing about that is the research is sort of like twofold in that, first of all, you where you actually measure like, okay, is this a potential candidate for a biocontrol? Is it actually working? Is it actually reducing the amount of disease that you see on this wheat head, for example? Um, But the second part is, okay, even if it does seem like it's working, this product is ultimately going to, you know, hopefully be used on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. And with that comes, you know, the requirement of like it being stable for a long time. So what we were doing is all of these sort of like post development experiments where we study how we can maximize the storage value Basically, is it practical to call it a biological control candidate to where um, farmers can 
actually utilize it on like a large scale. And so with any science that you're trying to come up with some kind of solution, Mm. um, you have to think about like, how can it be practically, how can it be readily applied to reality? Like, can it be extended beyond the laboratory? Can it, can it be extended beyond like a little tiny Petri dish? Um, so that's definitely like a challenge, um, that is hard for my, my sort of perfectionist side to, to grapple with sometimes. Um, but you know, science is slow in that matter. It's, it's very calculated steps, but it does take time to get to like, like a a decent amount of confidence, right. In order for it to be actually implemented in, you know, real thing. The only thing that, you know, I struggle with sometimes. Um, but I wouldn't say it's something that I dislike about science. I I've definitely just learned to consider it as like a reality of science. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there must be so many challenges, but those two alone, seem like challenges that are good honestly those are good challenges in my opinion <laughs> yeah yeah no it's good to hear you say that yeah because yeah, I mean, like some people they don't they don't really understand or they don't want to admit that you know science it's like it's too slow the solutions being you know implemented and so mm-hmm. like you know for people to for people to appreciate and respect that that is a good challenge or or that is like an inevitable challenge to have it's um i think especially just wanting to you know use what you've learned and then you know make it accessible that's i mean that last challenge especially i feel like is so necessary I just I would be stressed honestly if I (laughs) but but that's why I'm not a you know a biologist and I'm not an environmental scientist but but um that's amazing Miho thank you so much for sharing just all of that with us and just your life story I feel like I could talk to you for hours um but um one thing I do like to ask all of my guests before we end um, is yeah. if you have any advice for people that are maybe thinking about going to the sciences or just even just your own personal advice that you maybe want to share with those that are um, looking to go to college or anything, anything at all. I would say that um setting your goals your career goals or your professional goals or deciding on a career path those are all not a life and death situation like mm-hmm. those are not questions that have like consequence to whatever answer you come up with you know it's like Yes, it's good to have a goal and, you know, put in your hard work to achieve those goals. But in terms of knowing 
what you want to do, that's, that is not, I mean, if you do know at one point what you want to do and you end up doing that for the rest of your life, like kudos, but that is not the end all be all. Um, and like I said, I am somebody who at multiple times thought that I knew what was going to happen like three years down the road and so many unpredictable things happened. Um, and I took so many, you know, unexpected turns, but somehow ended up, you know, in this great place that I'm at and not to say that I regret any of those decisions. And, you know, I, I am the sum of experiences, but um, I would not, if you, if you are not really certain, or if you are not really gung ho about anything in particular, I would not, uh, beat myself, um, about that. Um, but in time, I think that a lot of what I gained from this whole career path in all these different sciences is, um, it's from me talking to people. It's mm. from me being curious about the unknown and not being afraid or learning that it's okay um, to dabble in things that are a little bit out of your comfort zone. Um, and so I would say that even if any, even if it's just like a little peak in your interest that strikes you, like go to whatever source um, you you can you can access that may have a connection to whatever that thing is. Um, you know, go to talks that are beyond your fields. Like go to uh, talk to your friends' parents about what they do. Like your teachers about how they got to where they are because more times than not I think you're going to find out that wherever the person is right now is not something that they predicted like it's it's you know life is like an ever-changing thing and with everything else that's non-work related like you can't predict it and so for People to say like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think that's, it's a moot question because mm. um, I think it should be, what do you want to be right now? Like, what do you, what strikes your interest right now? And then go for that thing that is right now. And then pretty soon through that experience, as long as you maintain like an open mind and a curious mind, you may run things that are a little bit, you know, on a tangent from whatever that first path was that you were striving for. And that may lead you to another interest and that's okay. And it, like, as long as your, your heart is in, in whatever it is you're doing at that current moment, like the future is, you know, it's not something that you can control. And so if you don't know what is, you know, part of that future at that moment in time, like, don't worry about it. It's, yeah, it'll, it'll flow out. Just, you know, work hard and whatever it is that you're passionate in at the time and, um, and keep talking to people, keep listening. Um, I would say that those two are like my 
advice that I can offer up right now. No, yeah, (laughs) I love that. I mean, it's true. You know, we don't know what the future holds and, you know, we don't control that necessarily. You know, there are certain things that happen that lead to where you are today. And I think just being faithful with the things that you already have in front of you is um, great advice. That's exactly uh, the kind of advice I would give, too. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Miho, for your time and just sharing life with us. It was so great. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did, too. Um, I hope you had fun. Yeah, this is great. I was <laughs> honestly a little bit nervous about it, but oh, it was no. it was very enjoyable being able to being able to talk good. about my story and yes. Well, thank you again. And uh, like Miho said, you know, it is always good to just continue to ask questions and talk to people. And we would love to hear from you guys. If you guys have any questions about um, the sciences, maybe I can ask Mio to help us out a little bit if there's anything specific that you would want to know more about. uh, Please feel free to reach out to us uh, at podcastwegu at gmail.com. And the WIGU is the acronym for when I grow up. So it's podcastwigu at gmail.com. Thanks again, Miho. Until next time, guys. Bye.